Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, did you hear about the guy who wouldn't eat Atlantic cod? He had a Pacific taste in seafood. What did the fisherman say to the magician? Pick a cod, any cod. My guest today is Harry Pettit Wade. Harry is an aquatic animal biologist and ecologist based in Canada, with research primarily focused on fish movement, trophic ecology, species interaction, and response to novel or rapidly changing environments. All this is a really fancy way to describe his work monitoring fish patterns and their implications with climate change and spending time at camp tagging whales. We have a fun conversation today covering topics ranging from tropical sharks to arctic fish and even narwhals. Harry has some great insights into what sustainable fishing really looks like and has an incredible field story and answer to the blank check question. So be sure to stay tuned for those. Please enjoy. Harry, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Hello. Yes, I'm excited too. How did you get into marine biology? Um, so I grew up in the UK surrounded by water and uh, every summer I used to go on holiday to Pembrokeshire which is in South Wales and I spent a lot of time on boats and looking around in rock pools and wondering what was beneath the waves that really got me interested in biology then I did a project for my A-levels which is when I was about 18 a project on whales and that got me super excited so I applied for marine biology at universities around the UK. Mm. What kind of whales were you looking at in your project? You know, it was, it was quite a broad project. I was just <laughs> describing them in general. So, yeah, I could go anywhere I wanted with it, but uh, I focused on baleen whales. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. As opposed to tooth whales. Right. Right. So why baleen over tooth? I think it was the size factor. <laughs> <laughs> at the time, I was just you know, interested in... The fact that blue whales are just the biggest thing that's uh, ever existed. And yeah, I was interested to learn more about that, why that's the case, even though they eat some of the smallest things. Right. The biggest creature on Earth eats some of the smallest creatures on Earth. It's amazing. It is incredible. Yeah. So so this project kind of 
was the jump off point for you to applying to universities. So you knew right away that you wanted to study marine science when you were going to university. Did you have a specific like field in mind or were you just like ocean, give me anything? Yeah, I was pretty open to it when I started sort of any kind of inspiration. A lot of people who do marine biology think that it, that you're going to spend your time riding dolphins or <laughs> that uh, you're just going to be focused on the very charismatic, super exciting animals. But I was open to inspiration for more because I, I get excited by really tiny animals as well. I think I just am interested in the whole, which has led to where I am now, which is studying ecology. But field trips on what during my undergrad really inspired me where we were just sent off to go and find a study topic out there <laughs> in the water. What was that like? You're just part of a class and the professors like come up with a topic. Did you have like a set planned field trip that was like, we're going to go to the beach or go, or you, are you in a boat and kind of creating a project from that? We didn't go on a boat for any of the field trips I did. We went to um, the Algarve in Portugal for one and mm. to Roscoff in France yeah, both of those were by the beach, so we were essentially looking at the intertidal, or in the Algarve there were mud flats there, so a lot of people studied the crabs, the fiddler crabs that came out of their burrows waving their big claw. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, essentially when we got there, they said, okay, go and find a project, <laughs> and uh, we worked in groups, and then we presented on it. That was the major theme. There were other set parts of the curriculum, but uh, those are the parts I remember that were inspiring. Yeah. So what did your project end up being on? The fiddler crabs? No, we got rained out uh, when I was there. So it ended up being on the feeding rate of barnacles. Mm -hmm. So we collected different barnacles, yeah, and, and then we observed them. And we counted the amount of times that they stuck out their feeding apparatus, <laughs> depending on the conditions in the water. So you just watched barnacles. That would be actually very meditative, <laughs> I would think. Yes, <laughs> quite a humbling experience. <laughs> but uh, it makes you realize that marine biology isn't, yeah, isn't just what big things eat. And it's, it's also the little guys have a massive role to play. And there's a real sort of shortage, I think, of marine biologists to study things that aren't so charismatic. <laughs> yeah, and, and you can kind of see why. But I feel like there's so many people that are fascinated by the tide pools, like you were, right? I mean, they are mesmerizing. I've definitely sat for at least an hour just watching anemones and barnacles move in tide pools because it's like almost hypnotizing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And with phot photography now, like everybody's got a crazy high power camera on their phone so you can look at things in incredible detail. Yeah, yeah, that's true too. Which university did you graduate from for your undergrad? University of Plymouth. Okay. Did you know you wanted to get your PhD after that? No, I wasn't sure when I left, but I was fortunate that I had a couple of very inspiring supervisors or mentors there at the university, and they helped me get a scholarship for a master's. So I went on to do a master's in applied fish biology, which was heavily focused on um, sustainable fisheries and agriculture practices. Mm. Yeah, but the research project actually ended up being on the nutritional requirements of lemon sharks, which was super exciting. And that's what made me decide, okay, I want to get a PhD after this. 
Okay. Yeah. I, so I saw your lemon shark project and it was really fun because all of your research now is in very cold climates, but your lemon sharks was done in the Bahamas, which is a huge change from the UK even. So could you tell a little bit about what that project was and some of the findings from it? Yes. That project built on a lot of work that was done by people before I arrived uh, as a master's student. So Steve Newman, a uh, postdoc, at the time when I arrived, he did his PhD on it and he collected an enormous amount of samples that were that depicted the diet of lemon sharks mm. in Bimini in the Bahamas. And they allowed for comparison between wet and dry seasons and, and impacted and, and less impacted sites of the island. I analyzed those samples for the nutritional and trace element content. So then we figured out what these sharks were getting on a day-to-day basis and provided that information just like you would see on the side of a on a food packet for what kind of nutritional intake you could get from what you're eating. Hmm. What were you finding? I mean, lemon sharks eat fish, right? They don't eat... <laughs> so, and they don't eat shellfish, do they? No, they do. Yeah, they, they eat crabs as well, uh, crustacean, oh, yeah. Okay. Quite a large portion of their diet is juvenile lemon sharks. Okay. And so what we found was they were getting... A decent amount of energy in their diet but mm-hmm. they may have been deficient in some trace elements it's often ignored that aspect of the nutritional intake of wild animals the importance of micronutrients as opposed to just energy intake yeah, is, is also equally important and it was interesting to go into that much depth in terms of the nutritional value of what they're getting from different prey items and how that might change with changes in prey availability with you know warming oceans yeah, so that's really interesting. So lemon sharks were eating these creatures, I mean, these creatures that they're adapted to eat, right? And that traditionally eat, but they're still finding, or you found that while they're getting enough energy to kind of sustain growth, they were deficient in certain micronutrients. Okay, so like basically you're kind of like a shark nutritionist, and you, but you can't write like a prescription for it and be like, hey, shark, like, okay, so you're deficient in these nutrients. Can you please be take this supplement, right? Like, like <laughs> What's the solution for that? Is it just like prey item availability based on like ocean conditions? <laughs> yeah, I think the cautious the cautious advice is on maintaining sustainable fisheries so we don't overfish mm. Mm. the prey that are available for apex predators in the ocean okay. that help sustain resilient ecosystems and food webs. Okay. You said they eat a lot of crabs, which I didn't realize. Makes sense though. Was there traditionally a fish that was more available and then it just is less available and that's kind of why they're deficient was that something that the research looked at at all or somebody else's research that complemented yours looked at no there hasn't been a huge amount of research building on this yet but they fed on the most abundant fish that was available that was clear and that was like what we'd sort of expect from what we've seen in other studies as well but it wasn't so uh, expected that they would supplement their diet so much with these the crabs helped with the trace elements. What has happened in Bimini since that study is there's been huge development in the north of the island. Mm. There's been some studies on, on the potential impact mm-hmm. of that, but there is yet to be more in-depth research in terms of the nutritional changes in nutritional value of the prey. Interesting. Okay. The micronutrient level of the sharks. In Bimini, TBD. So what was it like? What was it like go, you know, flying into the Bahamas as a grad student from the UK? Like, What was your field experience like? What were your living conditions like? 
That's a really good question. <laughs> Unfortunately, not one, not one I can answer because I didn't get to go. I, st- I still haven't been to the Bahamas. <laughs> and it's an important lesson for uh, any prospective marine biologists out there <laughs> yeah. or biologists or ecologists that you don't always get to go to your field locations. Sometimes you get just get given samples. And there's lots of people who have samples ready to process for uh, any willing undergraduates. <laughs> That is a really good lesson. And it's actually, it's super common, right? Because it's really expensive to send people out into the field to collect the data. And so if you can collect a data and then if a few people can collect data and then share it with a bigger audience, that's the most effective use of resources. So that makes total sense. But as a grad student, you're like, oh, but don't I need to, don't I should be there in person, right? Yeah, it's definitely uh, a benefit of the researcher to see, you know, the environment that you're studying, the mm-hmm. ecosystem and the, and the species within it. Mm-hmm. There's been so much study on, on Bimini in the Bahamas with the research station there. There's a lot of right. literature, you know, photography, video footage that uh, I was able to see that helped. Mm-hmm. It is still on my list to, <laughs> to go, go visit someday. I've had lots of other field experience though, thankfully. Yeah. So let's chat a little bit about that. So you get your master's. Now, were you able to get in the field like at all during your master's? Obviously, Bimini Bahamas didn't happen, but did other field experiences happen? Because I didn't get to go to Bimini, I worked for uh, or I volunteered for a company called Operation Wallacea Mm. in Honduras. Yeah. So I got to go to Honduras for a month or so. And I went, I helped with other undergraduate projects during that time and some PhD projects doing reef surveys and I was diving the whole time. So I think it it kind of made up for me not being able to go to the Bahamas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So you're doing reef surveys in Honduras. That sounds incredible. That's some of the best diving. It was a very inspiring time for sure. Now, when you graduated with your master's, like you had an idea that was you're going to go for a PhD. Did you go right away or did you take some time off and work for a little bit? I did take, yeah, I took some time away from it to um, sort of reassess. And I tried to continue the research that I was doing for my master's. Mm. But unfortunately, we weren't successful in getting funding for that. Mm. As a sort of another life lesson that happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for every successful funding application, there's a whole amount of unsuccessful ones that no one hears about. Yeah, so I applied for PhDs elsewhere when I sort of gave up on that uh, and continuing that track and just explored what else I was interested in. And I got accepted for a couple in Canada on invasive species. And that's how I ended up over here. Very cool. Now, why Canada and why invasive species? <laughs> Canada was just because of the topic, I think, is... The topic was the main reason why I travel anywhere, essentially, to, to study it. I found the ecology and the evolution aspect of invasive species very interesting. Invasive species are like an unplanned evolution experiment. <laughs> I don't think I've heard it put like that, but you're 100% correct. <laughs> an unplanned evolution experiment, yes. What happens when you put a species in a new location? How does it respond to that environment? With invasive species, if they've already established, you're looking at that once it's already taken place, but it's taken place recently, whereas opposed to other animals in the natural environment, it's taken a very, it's taken a very long time for them to get to that point. Right. I found that very interesting. And then also the application of understanding more about invasive species can help us manage ecosystems and maintain their 
stability and biodiversity. So what were some of the invasive species that you were looking at? We looked at pairs of successful and less successful invasive species mm. that uh, were otherwise similar. So the focus was on, on fish, on uh, gobies, mm-hmm. and the round goby and the tube-nosed goby uh, that uh, successfully established in the Great Lakes and spread widely throughout North America. Where did it come from? It came from over in the Black Sea area. Mm. Yeah, and I was, I was actually lucky enough to go over and sample from the native region, from the Black Sea area, which was an incredible time. Yeah, and they, they were introduced via ballast water in ships. Yeah. And we actually went to the port where it suspected the main propagules, the main invasion events stemmed from. <laughs> site zero. Yeah, site zero. So it was a very interesting place. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I have so many questions about this. Okay, so <laughs> invasive species, I learned about this, I mean, I was in high school, and it like boggles my mind that one, these animals can just like get sucked up by these ship's ballast waters and get transported halfway across the world, get dumped into other waters and survive. And not only survive, they become an issue. Well, they can become an issue. Yes. Like zebra mussels is like the first thing that pops in my mind, especially in the Great Lakes in the US. It's still, yeah. it's still a problem. Right. So, but when you think gobies, I mean, gobies are like cute, tiny little fish. They're like two, three inches. I'm not sure what the centimeter conversion of that is, but like there's cute little fishies. So are there native gobies that they're out competing? Like what, why, why are these gobies such a problem? Yeah, there are native fish that are similar in ecology. They have similar ecologies. The sculpins, yeah. um, there's some sculpin species that have been locally wiped out by, um, by the gobies' presence. Mm. And they also modify, they're sort of ecosystem engineers a little bit. They burrow or they create uh, nests, which changes habitat. And they're also quite aggressive. They defend those nests quite aggressively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some species in, in the Great Lakes have switched their feeding towards gobies to such an extent that their morphology has changed. Like trout feed more benthically to feed on goby or they feed more at the seabed where the goby are found, and they found that um, that's uh, correlated with shorter head shape. Oh, because uh, they're kind of like down in the muck instead of in the water column? Yeah, exactly. So they don't. How long have the gobies been here? I mean, how long have they been an invasive species? Well, 1991 was the initial invasion. So 1991, 30 years, and morphology of the predators, or like the native predators, is already changing. That's wild to think about. And the worry is that that could change, where it changes the whole dynamics of the food web. There's also interaction with other invasive species, like the zebra mussel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gobies eat the zebra mussels, and that uh, is thought to be part of the reason why they're so successful, mm. because yeah, they've already adapted to feed on, on these uh, mussels, whereas native species have not. So... Yeah, that's so crazy to think about. So what were you specifically looking at with your PhD? We were looking at what was driving the successful spread of these species after they had established. So that's why we compared ones that were successful or less successful with success determined by the speed and the distance that they spread after they were established. So you have the round goby, which spread very quickly over a very great a great distance 
compared to tube nose scoby, which is much, le much less well-known. It spread over much less distance. Yeah, so what did you find? Why was one goby more more prolific than the other one? Well, there's, there's obviously a lot of reasons that uh, contribute to this, uh, but my project was focused on the ecology, uh, specifically in terms of what they were eating, and we used stable isotopes to look mm -hmm. at that, which indicate specifically carbon and nitrogen stabilized isotopes. That are stabilized isotopes are variations of an element. They have a different number of uh, neutrons, so the chemistry of the element essentially stays the same, but we can use these variations to trace changes in diet because they change in a predictable way um, through the food chain uh, or between trophic levels. So large apex predators, they have higher amounts of heavier nitrogen isotopes relative to lighter isotopes. And then the carbon isotope gives us an indication of where they're feeding their habitat. So we use this to look at their ecological niche or their dietary niche. And we found that uh, round goby has uh, a larger and more flexible dietary niche than um, tubinous goby. Okay. I want to break that down a little bit because stable isotopes still like boggle my mind a little bit. <laughs> okay. So bigger, bigger the critter. The more carbon they have, the more um, diversity they have in their diet. That's kind of what you're saying? Um, so for nitrogen, they have a higher concentration of heavier isotope, which accumulates through the food chain. Okay. So it's nitrogen that you're looking at. It's nitrogen. But we also look at carbon, which is related to the carbon source, is related to uh, different plants, and they are, so they can indicate where the fish has been feeding or where what they're feeding on have been. Okay. All right. So nitrogen is the animals that they're eating and carbon is the plants that they're eating. And the bigger the critter, the more uh, diverse this traditionally is because they can, they will eat either both or just a bigger quantity. Essentially it's all of this. Yeah. Sort of stems from the bottom of the food web and okay. gets traced upwards. And so carbon doesn't change very much as you go through the food web. Okay. But it, yeah, so that's why it gives an indication of where they're feeding because it doesn't change based on what they're feeding on. Okay. It, it changes based on where they're feeding. So yeah. the more variation in their diet, the better chance that they had of surviving in these areas? Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. And part of this is, comes down to they have more variety in, in their habitat specifications, whereas tumors goby have quite a specific habitat requirement. Mm -hmm. um, we found this with going into the native region and you had to go to these backwater um, little tributaries to find tube nose where it was quite shallow. There's a lot of um, macrophytes or, or weeds in the water, mm -hmm. whereas the go round goby would just be everywhere, essentially. Interesting. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> so you graduate your PhD and you're, you're like, I really like fish. <laughs> you stayed on to study some more fish. <laughs> what? Why did you end up staying in Canada? What kind of prompted that decision a little bit? Well, I should say I studied invertebrates as well in the PhD. But yeah, fish fish are definitely where my heart's at <laughs> from <laughs> my master's in applied fish biology. But 
I stuck around because, well, when I, when I finished my PhD, I got offered a position in Nigel Hussey's lab. And uh, he does a lot of exciting research throughout the world on fish ecology from small forage fish up to large apex predators and marine mammals as well. Um, and a lot of work in the Arctic. And he wanted some help managing field programs mm. because he has a lot of ambitious field programs and he was just setting up his lab at the time. So I started on and immediately went to this field program in the high Arctic called Tremblay Camp, which mm. is was uh, classically called Narwhale Camp. It's <laughs> yeah. a much more fun name. <laughs> Narwhal, I want to go Tremblay Camp. I mean, that's a nice name, right? But then you're like, I want to go to Narwhal Camp. Yes, I will go to <laughs> How long were you at Narwhal yeah, Camp for? Difficult to say no to that, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's six weeks. Okay. Yeah, and but the year I went transitioned into more of an ecosystem approach. Okay. So it was called Ecosystem Approach Tremblay. was that uh, the year I went where we were studying Narwhal, but we were also studying as much as we could about what, to be connected to the narwhal. We, uh, we were studying oceanographic parameters we measured, we collected zooplankton, we, uh, we did bathymetry surveys, and we tagged fish to track their movements and sharks. This is in 2017 when you were tagging like Greenland sharks? Yeah. Amazing. What was that like? How do you, how do you even catch one to tag it? So we catch them using long lines. Okay which are advised against in fisheries now, but uh, we... <laughs> but sometimes science ignores that just to get the data. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, you get <laughs> you get a pass with science because you're not doing it on a massive scale. Right? Right. You're doing it on a small scale, and it's very directed and um, targeted. Right. Yeah. And also, you want uh, fisheries long lining, you know, you're you're trying to kill things. You're trying to catch them to bring them on board to eat them. And scientific long lining, traditionally, you want to tag them and keep them alive. So there's a yeah. little bit more vigilance behind scientific long lining. You want to keep everything alive that gets on that hook. Yeah, there's there's some more rules you have to go by. Yeah. So we use these long lines, which are, is, is a long line with hooks um, sequentially along the line and a big weight on either end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a float line coming to the surface. So we went out to these lines and checked them daily uh, on a small Zodiac inflatable boat. We pull up the line and check the hooks. And if there is a shark on the hook, then we would pull the shark along the side of the boat and we secure the tail of the shark on one end and we secure the head on the, on the other end with uh, straps around the body and then and we invert the shark so when you invert a shark they go into what's called tonic immobility mm-hmm. which means they're completely docile and that's how we perform the, the tagging without the shark thrashing around yeah that's so wild now these are all acoustic tags that you're attaching to sharks uh, we tag them with acoustic tags but also these packages of uh, satellite tags and various devices recording things like acceleration, temperature, conductivity, salt levels in the water. Did you get all your tags back? We got most of them back, yeah. All right. Yeah, most of them back. There was a tag that ended up in in Wales (laughs) that was someone found on the shore on the beach. 
and these tags they have numbers on them i forget if this was actually from this project but there's a lot of tagging that that nigel does with his lab in baffin bay in that region in general so one of the tags ended up in wales and they gave him a call up and he got it back with the data <laughs> that is so wild to think about i mean tagging Tag is mind-boggling, right? So, like, I mean, acoustic tags, you're attaching a receiver onto an, a wild animal in hopes that they are going to go by some acoustic. Well, you're attaching acoustic tag onto a wild animal in hopes that they go by an acoustic receiver close enough for the receiver yeah. to hear the tag effectively, right? Yeah, it's using the same technology that we use for the fish. So you've deployed these acoustic receivers in the water, and they're able to read the tag, same tags from the fish or the sharks? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, we're able to look at potential interaction between them in terms of proximity. With these sharks, we actually used uh, quite a novel or emerging technology called a VMT, which is a, a mobile transceiver, which is a small receiver and a tag built into it um, on the animal itself. So then that animal is picking up detections from other fish and sharks as it swims along hmm. yeah we, we had to we have a paper out in the journal animal ecology yeah. on that as a uh, potential framework for looking at species interaction yeah that's really interesting so wait it, this tag could pick up it had to be other tagged animals right it wasn't just like an animal swimming by the other animal it had to be tagged Yes, yeah, they have to be tagged, and that is part of the caveat of the research. You can't tell if they're swimming past a shark that isn't tagged. Okay. And we, we looked at that potential response from that with uh, accelerometers that were placed on the head of the shark. That is so cool. Because it kind of paints that picture, right? Like, what is actually going on underneath the water? Like, not just where are they going, but, like, who are they seeing? Right, it is incredibly hard to study that, but... The uh, advances in technology right now are very exciting. Yeah, very cool. So primarily, though, it seems like a lot of your research is revolving around this Arctic sculpin and char. Could you explain a little bit more about like what you're looking at? Yeah, so one of my main focuses is to look at fish movements, smaller, smaller than Greenland sharks, to really fill in data gaps that where there's huge data gaps in, in the Arctic. In coastal regions, there's the kind of baseline information that we have for a lot of places further south, a lot of species further south is just not there for the Arctic. And the mm. Arctic has been impacted so quickly by climate change and, you know, receding ice. So you've got increased ship traffic and traffic of people and everything that comes with that. So, and trying to understand how species are responding to that is challenging without that baseline information on where fish are going. What, you know, at different times of year or multi-annual, and that's the beauty of this technology, acoustic telemetry is that you can track the same individuals over multiple years once you have the equipment in place. So I took the experience I gained from uh, Tremblay Sound and applied it to my own project in the Western Arctic with Nigel Hussey and working with fisheries and oceans uh, Lisa Rosetta of Fisheries and Oceans, to understand how Arctic char are moving along the marine coast and uh, Greenland cod that are closely related to Atlantic cod and Pacific cod. Mm -hmm. 
where there's yeah little information for where these fish are moving for Arctic char, how different populations associated with different lakes, how they differentiate in their coastal movements and habitat use, and then apply that to addressing concerns that indigenous communities have for maintaining sustainability of their, their subsistence harvest catch and for questions that everybody has in terms of how climate change is going to affect these species and ecosystems. Yeah. I have a few questions. One, I was just talking with Kate Morrison and with the Ocean Foundation, and she was on a roundtable with different stakeholders, including government, and they had tribal elders with them to help formulate decisions for policymaking and sustainability and fisheries. And one of the things that was brought to the table by the tribal elders is their definition of sustainability was looking multiple generations into the future, like not just one or two, but like seven was the number that she threw out. So I was curious if that was kind of like a similar mindset with the tribes that you are interacting with or that have, that have stakeholders in these areas that you're looking at. In the Nuvaluit sediment region, which is where my research is currently based, they are quite proactive in terms of in terms of being really cautious about their fisheries mm-hmm. um, for future generations. So I'd say, yeah, at least, I, I mean, they haven't put a specific uh, number of years mm-hmm. for how far they look in the future from conversations I've had, but they definitely are um, cautious in terms of looking far into the future trying to maintain the sustainability yeah they're so connected to their livelihood you know, um, right there i think it's very difficult for people who haven't been to communities in the arctic to understand until you've been there to see how expensive things are in the shops how uh, unavailable things are a lot of the time how difficult it is to get the things that are readily available for us for the south and how important it is for people in these communities to have the natural resources that they depend on. Right. It's something I've been thinking a lot about lately is, you know, indigenous cultures are way more connected to nature than we are. And even, you know, now they, they've gotten further away because that's how the world has shaped. Yes. Yeah. But it's interesting to see like those cultures still exist. They're so intricately wound with nature that if something collapses, they're directly impacted by it. Yes, yeah, exactly. And they're being affected more and more all the time. Mm-hmm. Interacting with technology now more than ever, which is another interesting aspect. Yeah. Technology always provides an extra level, right? So it makes things yeah. interesting. So what is the difference between a Greenland cod and an Arctic cod? To me, those are just like cold water cods. Is there like a physical difference between them? Yes, yeah. The, the Atlantic cod, they grow much larger than the Greenland cod. Okay. Which is partly why they're of more interest for fisheries. Okay. Yeah, and the Atlantic cod have these huge migrations across a lot of populations, have these huge migrations across the Atlantic. Mm. And further into the Arctic now, with climate change in the European Arctic, they're establishing spawning grounds towards higher latitudes. They migrate back to the coasts of uh, Europe for feeding grounds. This is kind of what your research is looking at, right? Like all the creatures that are liking cold, that require cold water to survive are moving to higher latitudes and they're 
needing to move higher and higher to live in the conditions that they're used to. Yeah, there's certainly evidence now that uh, a lot of Arctic species are moving towards higher latitudes, and then subarctic species like the Atlantic cod, Pacific cod, are moving towards higher latitudes in their place or overlapping. And how that dynamic is panning out is really a new, you know, very new area. It's happening so quickly that there is limited information for understanding how it affects coastal ecosystems in general. Is that something that your research is kind of looking at as you're tagging these fish? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So part of the reason why Greenland cod is there's evidence just that it is essentially the same species as Pacific cod. Genetically, they're uh, almost identical, but they have different ecologies. So it's it's kind of unclear how they will interact when they come into more contact um, mm. or if they come into more contact, which is becoming increasingly likely. Maybe they'll create a super species. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> That's my hope. Yeah, or that they just become one species, which is one of the predicted sort of impacts of climate change is a reduction in complexity. Right. I mean, we're, we're within, we're living through a biodiversity crash right now, and, and so we're going to end up with less species. Our ecosystem is going to become less diverse and uh, less interesting, essentially. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the whole thing of it, right? Like biodiversity is the the foundation of our natural world, and the less biodiverse, the more susceptible we are to yeah anything, really. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. It's a fascinating area of research for me, and, and there's so many different avenues for it as well when interacting with Arctic communities and, and hearing their perspectives and their questions, because we came into this project with certain questions and we adapted them to address the concerns of the community as well. So how have your questions changed as you've interacted with these Native communities? So at the beginning of the project, we had uh, meetings with hunters and trappers communities and working groups focusing specifically on Arctic char, because that's the main harvest species for subsistence harvest of fish, although they harvest green and cod as well. It's not as much of a focus. So we went to those meetings and there are questions were associated with understanding more about connectivity between populations of Arctic char and, and trying to understand the potential impact of fishing in different locations or continuing to fish on one lake population in particular to see how, how will that affect sustainability long term. Hmm. And it, yeah, it's challenging to address that, those questions, but uh, we um, argued that we could address some of these using tagging work where we're able to see where the fish move along the marine coast, how much overlap there is with the community and where they fish, and how much overlap there is between populations associated with different lakes on the marine coast to see if they're fishing in one location, are they fishing multiple populations on there, or are they, are they still fishing the same population that they do in the winter in the lakes, which would be a cumulative effect to potentially reduce the overall population abundance below sustainable levels mm. fascinating it's really interesting work it is it's exciting i mean it's it's just the sort of service of it really as well because a lot of my focus here is on the fish but 
we applied a kind of ecosystem approach as well to this. So to try and understand the drivers of fish movement. So we took an array of oceanographic measurements and habitat surveys and listening devices to hear marine mammals, sampling of the food web, which is all information that has never been done before for this area, never been collected before for this area. Now, are you going out and collecting all this extra oceanographic information as well, or is this just kind of like part of a lab-wide effort? I mean, I led the project to collect this information, but it's okay. definitely a lab-wide effort with a lot of people involved. <laughs> okay. So you, d you do get to go out and play with the, play the other side of it. Yes. No, thankfully, I did get to do the field work on this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, several years and it's uh, some very exciting field programs, for sure. Really incredible work. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I have a few questions that I like to ask each guest as we kind of wrap up here. First up, what does the ocean mean to you? I think it means home to me. It's mm. when I see the ocean, I just, I feel at home. I feel at ease. I feel peace, even if it's crazy, choppy, violent winds over the, over the ocean surface. I just um, feel at ease because that's what connects me to my childhood, I think. Mm. Yeah. And I also feel wonder and amazement because there's so much left to be discovered underneath the waves. Absolutely. It's an amazing place. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding, what project would you want to use it for? Uh, does this surpass political boundaries as well? Sure. Blank check. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess it's just uh, if, an ideal world. Yeah, an ideal world. What would you want to make happen? Um, so I think I would establish a large connected network of monitoring devices. So using similar technology that we've used in these field programs in the Arctic to track fish movements and marine mammals and record oceanographic variables. I would uh, apply it towards an Arctic-wide, at least, uh, array with, with moorings that are linked together through a, um, a hub that can relay the information to satellites or gliders that you deploy. Mm. Yeah, so these kind of systems, they can be put in place long-term to help us understand impacts in 10, 20 years, we can look back at the information collected now. And once the infrastructure is there, it's, it's a, a lot less work to sort of maintain it. Yeah, that's a really good point, because that's a that is a limitation with acoustic receivers is it they'll collect, you know, all the data nearby, but you have to go out, my understanding, at least right now, you have to go out yes. and like physically pick up the receiver and download the data from the receiver. Yeah, exactly. So, but there's there's uh, advances now that um, it's leading towards. There are options of remote data collection. Okay. Yeah, I think with enough investment, you could push it forward. And I I try and get these out in places of the Arctic that are uh, quite understudied, like Russian and Siberian regions, linking them to the Canadian Arctic and the American European Arctic. If we had a international efforts, more of an international effort to understand links between these different regions. I think our uh, capacity to understand impacts on 
species in these different regions would be much better because fish don't recognize international borders, right? <laughs> right. Absolutely. So that was the part of the political boundaries question. <laughs> exactly. That was my, that was my question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ideal world. So Arctic, you'd still stay in the Arctic. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd apply it to the Arctic because it's, it's heavily understudied and it's changing so quickly. Mm. Yeah. That's a really good point. All right. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be an amazing day on the field where everything went right and you saw some amazing creatures, or it could be a day where things happened and it makes a really great story now. Or you could do one of each. <laughs> it's a tough one. I am fortunate that uh, still early in my career and I've got a lot of fun field stories to choose from. I think the one that uh, resonates with me a lot or more than anything is interacting with narwhal for the first time. And I, I hate to be that sort of cliche person who's just narwhal, they're so fun and exciting. Because I don't think that's cliche. I don't know how many people have actually interacted with narwhals. So that's pretty awesome. Right. <laughs> yeah, it did not disappoint. Um, the way we tag them in Trumbley Camp is we catch them in a big net on the shore and then we bring them into uh, closer to the shore so they're still in the water but we can interact and we can put a tag on their back but this requires quite a lot of effort from a lot of people involved not so many around the animal but uh, I was fortunate to be able to get close to the animal and looking down and, and seeing the eye of this creature just look back at you is an incredible experience. <laughs> and I always yeah. find that an incredible experience, whether it's a tiny crab or or a huge whale. But um, I think narwhal, because of the, they are, a lot of people still think they're a mythical creature. They <laughs> When I talk to people about them, they still don't believe me that they exist. So <laughs> in some cases, you know what? One of my really good friends is falls in that category. And I'm like, of course they exist. And he's just not convinced. So I think it's very <laughs> funny. <laughs> but they are, yeah, it's just a very humbling experience to be in the presence of a creature like that and, and to see them go off with the tag that we put on them and then to uh, hear about that data coming back. It's pretty special. That is so cool. How many novels did you tag for that project? Uh, that, that year we tagged... I think it was around 15. Okay. Yeah, which is less than normal. Uh, a few, a few less than we would normally. They would normally, I think. Okay. But that year we ramped up and did everything else. So we also tagged 30 sharks and 30 of each different species of fish, and yeah, there was a lot going. A lot of tagging happening. Yes. Okay, so you had significantly different tagging methods between narwhal with a net and onshore and then long lining with these Greenland sharks. Now, do you catch your fish, just hook and line? Uh, yeah, some of them we did, okay. we did catch some of them angling, um, but we also used fike nets to catch some of the small forage fish and sculpins. Okay. And then we used gill nets to catch a lot of the char as well. Okay. Interesting. Lots of different methods. Was one more effective than the other? You know, fog nets are incredible. That they're so good at catching a huge diversity of species of the little forage fish. 
but they're not so great at catching the bigger fish that mm. uh, are more transient, like the Arctic char. And so each of the each of the methods I think is quite well suited for the different species: sculpins for pike nets and, and gill nets for char. You're saying fike net? Fike net, yeah, F Y K E. I don't think I've heard of that. Can you describe it? Uh, yeah, they, they consist of several square, I think you can get them circular as well, frames uh, connected together by a sort of tube-like net. And then they have those frames separate out compartments that the fish swim into and then they can't swim back out of. So they end up in a cod end or they end up in the tail of the net altogether. Okay. Kind of like a bigger version of like a plankton net or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you have to check them quite frequently because all the fish are sort of um, end up in the end of the net together. <laughs> right. Packed in like, I would say sardines, but these are fish. Sardines if, if you leave it sit for too long. <laughs> That's funny. So at the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience a conservation ask to go forth and bring to the world. What would you like the audience to take from your episode today? It's not, not related to what I've been doing, but I'd say go and check, go and watch David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet. I watched it this weekend and it's hugely inspiring and really it describes a lot of the things that I'm passionate for and a lot of the reasoning behind my research, why I do it, and mm. um, why climate change is, is uh, so crucial for everybody to get on board with and understand the effects of and and support research that uh, is furthering, trying to further our understanding of the impacts of climate change. I love it. And in that documentary, they also talk about links with indigenous tribes, mm. um, groups. And that's my follow-up ask, is to watch that and then think about how the indigenous groups in your area or your country, how they interact with nature and what we can learn from that. Great ask. I love it. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and your research, where's the best place to do so? I'd say uh, you could go to hussylab.com. Uh, there's a lot of information about the different kind of research I've been talking about today. Or you could you could follow me on Instagram, which is Biologist, um, or Twitter, Harry PW. And that's where I'll be sharing updates on papers that are coming out and um, information on the research projects I'm working on right now. Perfect. And I'll put a link to those uh, recommendations as well as everything we chatted about today in the show notes. Harry, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. It's been an honor to be on. I really uh, appreciate being invited. And yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates.
Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.